Lord, I pray that you would uh, give us understanding, insight, wisdom, discernment, that we would heed warnings and have um, understanding where we just would otherwise not have it if not for the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, We show up here tonight as as people who are needy and uh, people who um, lack understanding in many ways, Uh, yet people who have enjoyed the fruit of a relationship with our God all day long. So let this be a time of worship as we are engaged by the text, and may you be honored in our time. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we had a phrase that came up, the grace that saves preceded the law that demands. That was kind of a theme last week. It sounds complicated. It's really not. And so we're going to talk about it here up front. The grace that saves preceded the law that demands. What does that mean? The grace that saves preceded the law that demands. Yes, grace was in existence before the law was given. What else does it mean? Yes, the law very much shows us our need for grace. What else? Grace that saves preceded the law that demands. We have to make sure we get this because there's a lot of us have been exposed to just sort of an idea that the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, as we've talked about on the last few Sunday mornings, is is all uh, legalistic and there's no grace at all. But thankfully now we're in the New Covenant and it's all grace, so we need not worry about the sanctions and things like that. And, And we need to get this clear that grace leads us to the law, not away from it. And in fact, grace preceded the law by showing us that it was a delivered, freed people who were given the law at the base of Mount Sinai. It wasn't people who were still slaves. It was freed people given that law. And so, grace indeed leads us to the law, not away from it. And it's not a matter of we're all under grace now, and they weren't then. Grace has always been in play, and grace was in fact what led God's people to the law. How does the law help us to help to establish free people in their freedom? How does the law help to establish free people in their freedom? It tells them how to live. And why do they need to be told that? Yeah. Without direction and boundary, our wickedness will carry us beyond the point of protection. Yeah. How else does it establish free people in their freedom? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Um, it's funny that there can be joy in obedience. Like, and we have so many thoughts against that that we need to do away with as we look at the law that there's joy in that obedience as we submit to God's design. What was wrong with the rich young man's question last week? What was his question? Remember the rich young man? Yeah, what did you say? What do I have to do to be saved? And what was wrong with that question? You can't do anything. So what's a better question? How can I be saved? How might I be saved? That's a better question. And as we're looking at that, um, how does that inform our evangelism when we're sharing the gospel with someone and they ask a question? Yeah, because it's still pretty normal for someone to say, well, how do I get saved? What do I need to do to get saved? What do I need to do to be forgiven by God? What do I need to do to have the approval of Jesus and to be covered and and guarded and and freed from my sin? What do I need to do what I need to do? And as you're sharing the gospel with someone, it's good to listen to the questions they ask because you might come to the point of saying, well, if you ask the question this way, you'll get a clearer answer because if you start off with a bad question, you might not end up with the answer that's most clear that really defines what God's will is for your life. And so that helps us there. What was the first commandment that we talked about last week? We were going to cover one through three, and we got through one. 
No other gods before me. That's correct. Uh, what uh, does that have to do with awe? Remember we read Isaiah 40. It seemed as though God was going to great lengths to help us not lose our awe. What does having no other gods before the one true God have to do with awe? Yeah, that's a great way of saying it. We'll share our attention um, when God never intended uh, to share. (laughs) We'll learn tonight that he says he's a jealous God, uh, and we'll learn what that means. Uh, What happens when we lose our awe? You said we share our attention. What are some other things that happen when we lose our awe of God? We drift away, which Hebrews 2 warning, pay much closer attention to what you've heard lest you drift away. What else happens if we lose our awe of God? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our, I, I was thinking this afternoon that I was like, well, our worship, our worship uh, stops. But our worship doesn't really stop. Our worship just shifts. You begin to focus on the thing in which you are awed by because you're not awed by that which is truly awe-inspiring. So um, as an overview, as we're looking at these commandments, just sort of a bird's eye view before we look at the exposition, uh, the commandments have two main aims. First is our relationship with God, and next is our relationship with other people, uh, which is found in the last five. Uh, The two sections are bridged by the commandment of honoring mother and father, which is what y'all's kids will be learning about tonight in large part. You're welcome for that. Um, So what we're seeing is that God has a design See the big picture here. God has a design in which his image bearers will flourish according to their created purpose. And the design that God has for his glory to be put on display is played out largely first in our movement toward him and next in regards to our movement toward each other. So as you're looking at the commandments, it's not just don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. What we're looking at is very relational All the commandments have some relational aspect, whether it be our relationship with our God, or whether it be our relationship with our family, or whether it be our relationship with other people. And so we're seeing that um, our movement towards him, next in regards to our movement towards each other, this means that God cares about how you choose your words. God cares about how you respond in your conflict. God cares about how you disagree. God cares about how you feel in your heart in each of those instances. And so God's really getting to the heart of the matter here. Remember that the aim of the commandments is not that God wants us to simply reform our actions. God's not just giving us a list so that we reform our actions, but uh, as he shows in his response to the rich young man, he cares very much about the condition of our hearts. He cares about the condition of your heart uh, when you move and when you respond and when you speak and when you work. He doesn't just care about what happens in the work. He cares about the condition of your heart in those things. Now look at verses 4 through 6. This is the second commandment, which we're going to be looking at tonight. We looked at number one last week. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. I feel like I should say these weird wooden things are not carved images of God or anything like that. They're just art, and they're not meant uh, to uh, be worshipped, so don't worship them. When Ben brought them here for the first time, he was like, come check out what I found. of some artist on the side of the road. I was like, you bought that. And he, he brought them in. I was like, cool, where'd you get those idols? Where'd you get those wooden images and idols? Um, so um, don't worship those. Uh, verses 4 through 6, uh, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So, this commandment, the second commandment, is not so much about worshiping other gods. We have to see this. That was dealt with in the first commandment. What's being dealt with in this commandment is about worshiping the true God in the wrong way. So let that get your attention a little bit. The first commandment was about have no other gods before me. The second one is don't worship the one true God in the wrong way. And namely, what is the wrong way? Insincerely, by way of what means? Say that again. Half-heartedly, 
Because we're looking at what as a means to worship him? Images. Yeah, something carved, something made by human hands that cannot even remotely, much less fully represent who our God is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that, that takes it a little step further because we talk, you know, here is particularly carving images, but we can have little images carved in our minds for sure about I think God is this. And when I see something, see, that's when we know if our worship is true or not. When we think of God in certain terms and we go to the Word and we say, oh, that doesn't fit with my paradigm, and then you throw it out as opposed to changing what your paradigm is in regards to how you view God. And so if you think, well, I mean, I, I, I'll never forget the first time I read some particular books of the Bible, I said, not my God. My God would never do such a thing. And what I was saying was, my version of God doesn't fit with what that Bible there says. <laughs> and so, I'm going to go ahead and dismiss that because I really like my version of, of God, which my version of God is ultimately an idol because it's a form of something that's not true. And so, we can certainly have those thoughts in our head. Um, so this commandment is not about worshiping other gods as much as it is about worshiping the true God in the wrong way. So what are the possible pitfalls of shaping or forming something to make it represent God and then worship it accordingly? Let it play out in your mind. What are some of the pitfalls you can see? What are the possible pitfalls of shaping or forming something to make it represent God? That could be one question. And then worship it accordingly. What are the pitfalls? What are the, why is he saying, don't do that? Yeah. We'll call it not him. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. The created trying to create the creator. It won't work. It won't work at all. Yeah, it's very Romans 1-ish. Yeah, there, there's a few things that happen. Um, if you do that, like if I say, okay, it's time to worship, and I put out the thing that we worship as a graven image, it limits God to a place and a time, which is impossible because he's outside of space and he's outside of time. God wants us to worship him in, him in spirit and in truth. And to worship a graven image would be to worship him uh, in sight and, and according to something that's not true and in the flesh. We must have his word in our hearts and our minds focused on him to worship him. Y'all thought about that? Like, this building is not the means by which you can worship God. Like, that could be a graven image to some degree. Like, man, I can't wait till I get there so I can worship God. Or I can't wait till that person plays that song so I can worship God. Or I can't wait till that person preaches that particular text so I can worship God. We have to be careful because what we need is um, his word in our hearts and our minds so that we can focus on him. He's known by that means. Um, turn over to Psalm 19. Keep, obviously keep your finger in Exodus because we're, we're going to get through more than one commandment this week. But over in Psalm 119... We're going to look at verse 9. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. So we've already talked about how the graven image could get in the way of wholeheartedness. And the way, the graven image could get in the way of actually seeking God as opposed to seeking some version or just a portion of him. So here we say, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. 
I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. How do these verses inform proper worship of God? And feel free to read through them again if you need to. Say that again. Yeah? This guy's priorities are straight. And what might those priorities be? God's word? Meditation? Yeah? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. How else does it inform proper worship of God, these verses? Yeah, there's joy in there. It's not this begrudging, fine Lord, I worship you. It's a wholehearted joy. Mm hmm. Sharing it with others? Yes. How else does this inform proper worship of our God? Yeah. I could be like the best artist ever, and I could not carve an image or paint a portrait or come up with any form that would more fully represent God than the Word. And that's why the Word is so central to everything we do. I mean, how can I keep my way pure? By guarding it according to the Word. If we stray from the Word and we care more about things like graven images, it would say, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to this, this thing, this image, this picture, this item, um, this place, potentially. Um, uh, one commentator made, you can turn back to Exodus 20. Uh, one commentator made the point where he, he said, you know, when you consider them in si at Sinai and at the base of the mountain, Sinai brought no vision to the eyes, only a voice to the ears. So God is modeling the very thing he's commanding. He's saying, you can't see me in the fullness of my glory. You can't try to come up with an image because ultimately people, I mean, that's not a, the motive of the heart wouldn't be bad for, at first. Like at first it would start off as maybe a somewhat pure thought, but then you disobey. What I mean is someone is trying to worship the Lord saying, I want to see him. I want something that spurs forward my worship. I want something that gives me some, some oomph as far as worshiping God. And then they try to come up with something. But God's saying, whatever you come up with is going to fall short. I know that you're wanting something that will spur you forward, but this thing will not spur you forward in your worship. You must treasure me via the word, and you must worship me in spirit and truth. And so when he showed up at Sinai, he could have showed up in the, like, hey, here I am. Look upon me and worship. But instead, it was, listen to my voice. They heard his voice, and he would answer in thunder. And so... Um, the reality of God ultimately goes beyond our senses, which is why we are incapable of carving an image or painting something or even writing something that rightly um, shows exactly who he is. Um, so graven images are, are off, off of, uh, they're off base according to our Lord and the commandments. Now, what does it mean that God is a jealous God? He says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation. What does it mean that he's a jealous God? Because that word is negative to most of us. Jealous. Ooh. What, what does that mean? Is God a jaded lover? Yeah. He won't share his glory with anyone. Because if he did so, what would that mean? He wouldn't be God. Yeah. 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 If he was not infinite in perfect 
glory and splendor and holiness, his jealousy would be sinful. Hear that. If God was not perfectly holy, his jealousy would be sinful. But because he is perfectly holy, his jealousy is in fact perfectly loving toward us. Now, um, it's not the jealousy of a jaded lover. God is never envious, and his perfect, he's perfectly zealous um, for his holy name, and sometimes we are not. And so, this is a warning. This is the commandment that he brings. And the word jealous refers directly to the attributes of God's justice and holiness. And so, um, my next question is, how is the iniquity of the father, fathers visited on future generations? How is the iniquity of the fathers visited on future generations? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what you just described was a result of sin, not um, necessarily this um, spiteful movement. What I mean by that is if one is godless and worldly, as you just said, there's undoubtedly an impact on their children. I mean, just at face value, take that as a warning. If you are godless and you are worldly and you are fleshly, there's going to be an impact on your children. That's the reason that God is saying... Um, be careful in the way you worship me because even in, in your attempt to worship me, your heart can deceive you and you can end up in a place where it sounds like it's about me, but it's not about me at all and you're going to lead even your children um, astray and actually not to worshiping me. And so if one is godless and worldly, there's undoubtedly an impact on their children. God wants us to see that there is a possibility that one does not see God rightly it's a possibility someone could not see God rightly and therefore not live rightly. And the result is a poisonous seed sown in the lives of their children, whereby their kids live out the same misconceptions and lies. To me, this is pretty staggering. And before you, there is a verse 6, and we'll get to it in a minute. But I want you to see that God is not addressing those who are worshiping other gods. He's saying to those who are going freestyle in their faith, and ultimately becoming guilty of idolatry that such living can result in your children and your grandchildren. What's the word there? Hating God. To those who hate me. It's not just a matter of misconception. It's a matter of sowing a seed, poisonous seed, in a wrong way, though you're saying it's about God, and ultimately what happens is there are children and grandchildren who hate God. This isn't a picture of a very angry God smiting little children who are saying, I love you, please accept me. This is a picture of generations hating God. This, this is very sobering. God is not threatening future generations. Rather, he is warning the current generation that the way they live can and will affect their offspring. Romans 1.18 applies because it implies that in at least some capacity, graven images suppress the truth and are thereby subject to the wrath of God. Remember Romans 1.18, we come back to it a lot and we're talking about God's wrath because it says the wrath of God is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. So in some degree, graven images suppress the truth because they're not representing God fully and therefore they are due the wrath of God. Now look at verse 6. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is very encouraging. Before you're thinking, oh man, we're going to screw up our kids and our grandkids. Look at what happens here. It's an encouragement. Because it's saying that even after five generations of a family hating God, he can raise up offspring to the tune of thousands who will love him and keep his commandments. So I think there's at least a subtle encouragement here. And don't write off your family. And don't write off kids who seem hopeless. I think that's part of the reason that we care for orphans and their affliction is because they may be generations into worldliness and godlessness. But here I see five generations of families hating God and God raising up offspring to the tune of thousands who not just are interested in hearing a little bit about God, but in fact who love him and keep his commandments. So there's a real encouragement there for us to don't write off your family and don't write off anyone else's family. We are hopeful as we share the gospel knowing that God is always at work and doing far more uh, than we can know or understand. Look at verse 7. 
You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, obviously, one way to take the Lord's name in vain is to use it as profanity, to couple it with another curse word and use it in a manner. That's one way to take the Lord's name in vain. My question is, what are some other ways? And if you're thinking other profanity, don't say that out loud. What are some other ways we could take the Lord's name in vain? Yeah. How could one use uh, the Lord's name carelessly? Say that again. Yeah. Yeah. God told me this. God said this. Have you heard someone do that and it has really nothing to do with God's will? Like God told me you should give me your money. Things like that. Uh, yeah, there, there's a number of things that people can say that really have nothing to do with God, yet they're attributing it to God. What are some other ways to take his name in vain? Yeah, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. If we sing a song to the Lord with our lips and our hearts are far from him, you are taking his name in vain. So it's not just a matter of cussing using God's name, although that's bad, don't do that. It misrepresents who he is. Um, but there is a sense in which when your heart is, Ecclesiastes says, we draw near to listen, not to offer the sacrifice of fools. And he goes on to talk about how our hearts need not be far from the Lord. And what our lips say, that needs to be springing from our heart, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you're speaking something that's not in your heart, you're being, you're being insincere, and you're misrepresenting God. Um, and that would be using his name in vain. Uh, when God is mentioned, when, say you're at work, and God is mentioned. Does everyone listening always have in mind the same thoughts in regard to God? The answer is no. I didn't see anyone going, oh yeah, yeah, we are all on board. Um, so, what are some of the differences, and why do they exist? Water cooler God talk. What are the differences, and why do they exist? I'll give you an example. I was at a business in Dallas uh, doing some work for them, and the uh, CEO of the company was talking to me, and she said, oh, you, you would, because she knew I was a minister, and she said, you would just love, love my uh, partner here, my operating partner. He is the most godly man I've ever met. Um, he's Buddhist, and he is just so gentle. And tender, and true, and sincere, and authentic. And I was like, wait, you said he's godly. You said he's Buddhist-y. Like, I don't, you know, I didn't understand what she was saying. And, and when I said God, she didn't hear the same thing that I was implying. So why do those differences exist? Yeah. If there's an idea of God that's not based on the Word, now, how in the world could we have ideas of God that aren't based on the Word? From everywhere? What are some examples? Yeah, watching too much TV. Bad teaching, bad preaching. Yeah. Yeah. I'll listen to everything the Bible says as a suggestion, and I will apply what I feel comfortable with. I, I mean, I, I've taught things that weren't exactly right before, and I, I'm pretty careful about what I teach. And there's some who are less careful, and some who are more careful. But the only reason that so many misconceptions, or one main reason that so many misconceptions about God exist is because there are so many things said about God that are just not true. And so it's ha it happens all over the place. And to the degree that they're not true, you are taking the, names, Lord, the Lord's name in, in vain um, because th there, there's not a true return on that. Um, so, um, 
Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's a great point. If you don't take into account the fall, then I'm fully deserving of whatever I say I'm deserving of, and God better move accordingly. But if you take into account the fall, you see what we truly deserve, and you see our fallen state and some of the ramifications of that. That's a really great point. Uh, The original language there uh, refers to just lifting up the name of God to emptiness. That's kind of a way to think about it. To use the Lord's name in vain is to lift up the name of the Lord to emptiness. Um, And... By this definition, using his name in vain can include speaking of him in an untrue way, misrepresenting him as image bearers. Consider that for a moment. You're image bearers, and so if you're misrepresenting him as an image bearer, to some degree you'd be taking his name in vain, singing songs half-heartedly. God does not want his name mishandled because it is the means by which he identifies himself. God doesn't want his name mishandled because it's the means by which he identifies himself. Like we, someone says, who are you? You show him your ID. If someone asks, who are you? He says, Yahweh. And he doesn't want to be misrepresented because that is the means by which he communicates to his children. And so I don't think it's honoring to God when we can say, so God says this, and then there's a bunch of people, I don't think so, maybe, I don't know. Well, I agree with that some, but not completely. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And it's the same thing. It's like, well, is it in here or not? And so we can have these misconceptions because we may mishandle it. Um, he identifies himself as he did at the beginning of this chapter. I am Yahweh. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. He wants it to be very clear. I'm not Moloch. I'm not an, a pagan god. I, I'm not aloof like many other gods. I can hear because I have ears. And I can speak because I have a mouth. Unlike the other gods who are just carved out of wood. Another reason not to have a graven image of our God. When we tell others of God, it needs to be clear who we are talking about. Because even today when you mention God, not everyone has the same thing in mind. We must be careful, again, not to suppress the truth. Because suppressing the truth is, is what God's wrath was designed by him for. Uh, look at verse 8. This is the one I've been wanting to get to for two months. Yeah. But not too much, because I really want to get to this. Yeah, I'd say it's worth saying because that the whole you are co-heirs with me provided you suffer because it's usually when you say something that suffering will ensue shortly thereafter to some degree. So it's worth saying. Now, don't, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. We all know who I'm talking about, that guy uh, who's going to police everybody according to his moral standard. But to say what's true about God and to, I mean, that, that you're a human being. Um, don't, don't say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Look at verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
On it you shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, I haven't been eager to get to this because it's like my favorite commandment or anything, and I certainly haven't been eager to get to it um, because I'm particularly good at it. Um, but I would ask the question, before we even look at the exposition, let me simply ask, are you rested and refreshed? You don't have to answer out loud. I pretty much know the answer. Are you rested and refreshed? As we engage this commandment, it's a really good thought to consider. Am I rested and refreshed? If you're not rested and refreshed right now, just think, when was the last time you felt rested and refreshed? Really try to think about that time. Okay? Now you have that in your head. What caused that feeling? Rested and refreshed. Was it vacation? Was it a drink? Did it have anything to do with Jesus? Rested and refreshed. This gets me. Because I, I... Someone said, well, what are the characters of your church? Rested and refreshed would not be the first thing to come out of my mouth. I think we can be frantic, busy, hurried, unfocused. And when I see this as one of the ten... They're mentioned here. I think it's supposed to be sobering for us. So I'd ask you, when you read these verses about Sabbath, what are some questions that come to your mind? Just so we can air some of the questions and maybe we'll consider a few. What are some questions that come to your mind? What's considered work? Bless you. Did Jesus move the rest from a day to himself? Can there be a switcheroo? It's a fantastic question. Hey, trust me, in a largely agrarian society, that, that would I'm sure someone was like, hey, hey, hey. I get six days of provision being seven six days of work, seven days of provision, but five, I ain't gonna cut it. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Y'all probably get an email tomorrow called Lessons from the Stick Gatherer. There's much to learn from that fellow. What are some other questions? What is rest? What is rest? That's a great question. They we're all thinking it. I hear of this thing. I've read stories and heard tales. I think, do we still keep a day? Are all the days the same because of Christ? Does eternal rest in Christ replace the need for a day that is set aside? Is the six days of work and one day of rest pattern to be followed today? Why do we have a two-day weekend? These are all things that jump into my head. So, turn over to Exodus 31, verses 12 through 17. We're going to hammer through a few pieces of Scripture and try to just wrap our heads around this, and hopefully you will leave with eager to consider some application, though we might not get to specific application here. I think God probably has something for you and your family. Exodus 31, verses 12 through 17 says, And the people, or, and the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, uh, that soul should be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest. Holy to the Lord, whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day, 
he rested and was refreshed. Now, here's my question. What if image bearers are never rested and refreshed? He rested and was refreshed. Now, if you're trying to figure that out, you can't. You can't think deep enough to understand that. I'm not saying that God's not understandable, but he's beyond your understanding, though he allows himself to be known via the word. But I'm like, did he need refreshment? He was refreshed. Did he need, was he tired? He wasn't tired, but he was rested. Wait, your brain explodes at some point. But he rested and was refreshed. So what does it mean if image bearers are never rested and refreshed? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tired servants or distracted servants. Yeah. 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 That's a great point. It's part of the gospel. No, that's a great point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is why we would rest on Sunday. I would say I'd I'd tweak it just a little bit to say that we, we won't feel the rest and refreshment that we will in eternity as we were designed to feel. But there's a sense that God's design in this is that your image bearers rest and be refreshed so that you're ready for Monday. Monday should be different than Sunday. To, those are a little bit strict terms. We can talk about that a little more probably next week, but it's like theme music, Donna. Um... Uh, but image bearers, if we're never rested and we're never refreshed, and God rested and was refreshed, I just wonder, are we rightly bearing his image? If we're frantic and always tired, never refreshed, what are we really saying to a community that's driven by their work and defined by the work or by money? Um, this gets touchy, I know, because times are difficult right now. Our economy's not all that great. And so I could start saying things where you'd be like, you pompous jerk. You have no idea what my circumstance is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can fall off of the cliff of self-preservation just as easily as you can fall off the cliff of being overworked. And sometimes the fear of one will absolutely lead to the certain happening of another. Meaning, I'm so fearful of being overworked, I'm going to fall off the cliff of self-preservation. Um, image birds are supposed to be rested and refreshed to some degree, not to the degree you will be eternally. Uh, this should be good news for you. Uh, God says this is something you need, yet many of us look at our situation and say it's really something else that we think we need. Um, my daughter Olivia, she's three, and uh, every now and again she'll get up in the middle of the night and... Um, her tummy hurts or her foot hurts or her finger hurts or her head hurts or her hair hurts or whatever. (laughs) And we find ourselves at the medicine cabinet. And uh, I open the medicine cabinet and I get the little basket of medicinal things out. And um, and, uh, her stomach hurts. So she says, Daddy, I want you to put this on my tummy. And it's anti-itch cream. It's like, well, that's really for your mosquito bite, sweetheart. That's not what you need. No, 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 Daddy, put that on my tummy. I'll feel better. That's not actually what you need, sweetheart. Okay, give me the pink things that taste like bubble gum. Well, that's actually for something different. That's not for this. Or she'll have an itch on her foot, and she wants the pink things, which are for her stomach. So what she's doing is she's sitting there arguing with me about 
what she needs when in fact she doesn't really know what's best for her. But if she would humbly submit to her father, soberly submit to her father, which soberness, sober thinking is something you can certainly expect from a three-year-old at two in the morning. Um, But if she would soberly submit, she would know, I have your best interest in mind, and I know what you need more than you know what you need. Um, The pink bubblegum stuff's not going to help the itch on your foot, and the itch cream's not going to help your stomach that, that hurts. And so I look at this, and I just think, when we don't rest, it's like looking at God and saying, no, I know what I need, and I'm going to go after it. And it's no different than Olivia saying, no, I know what I need, and I'm going to go after it. Um, when God's saying, no, this is what's best. This is, you're an image bearer, and you're made in my image. I rested and was refreshed. You need rest and refreshment on a regular pattern of life. And so um, we're going to send out, this is such an issue, and there's so many other things. It's Sunday, Saturday, Industrial Revolution, Jews, Gentiles. There's so many things. Um, uh, so we're going to send out an email um, addressing some of these issues um, because I think shedding light on them biblically will help us to rest because I, I just don't think corporately we're good at resting. Uh, it's just a recurring thing. Um, and it gets in the way of sober-mindedness. And so God knows what's best for us and, and we need to submit to that. And the, the more clearly we understand this, the better we'll, we'll, we'll potentially be by the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of our mighty God at submitting to that. In uh, Exodus 20, turn back there, there's one more verse we're going to look at. Honor your mother and father that your days may be long in the land and that, that your Lord God is giving you. Just this last, we could, spend, we could spend weeks talking about this. But the brief point that we'll look at tonight is Commandments 1 through 4 deal with the ordering of life for God's people. And then Commandment 5 begins to explain how this plays out in your important relationships. So God's not addressing just you individually do these things. Now he's saying it's not just about you as an individual, but you have these relationships that you're in um, by my design. And so God's saying family is part of my design. And so the relationship you have with your mother and your father is by my design. Um, I read one commentator who tried to explain that this is the one commandment that God, where God was addressing children. And I think God is addressing children, but I don't think he's only addressing children. Honor your mother and your father doesn't go away when you turn 18. And so some of you have a mother and father that are far along in age, and maybe you've gotten to the point in life where you're having to take care of them. And the reminder to honor mother and father is sobering and, and helpful in times such as that. We've seen commandment five, uh, how God's design plays out in our important relationships. And God sees the dynamics of the family as crucial in displaying his glory to all the earth. God sees the dynamics of the family as crucial in displaying his glory in all of the earth. The longevity of any community will fall apart if families diminish, which again is something we could talk about for weeks. Um, You take rest and you take honor your father and your mother and each generation is getting busier. We've talked about this a little bit before, but what does it say about a generational people if each generation is getting busier? Um, there may be a generation at some point that they don't have time to honor their father and their mother. Uh, honoring father and mother, is that, that, that's like 10th or 12th or 50th or 100th on the list of important things in my life. And so... Here, we see it mentioned right after all the things about our relationship with God and then how our, our relationships, particularly with our parents, affect what we put on display to a largely unbelieving world. And so, again, we could obviously talk about that for weeks, but at least tonight, heed the warning that it's not optional. It's not a conditional statement. It doesn't say, honor those who are honorable. Honor them when they earn it. It says, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Let's pray. Lord, I, I'm a little concerned at having to, I, I'm trying to, I want, I, I feel the need to get through all Ten Commandments by the time the holidays hit. Because I don't want to have to pick up and do like two in January. Um, so I am particularly thankful that you have us in Hebrews 2 
where we're looking at the law and then we're looking at grace and we're looking at how all this plays out. Uh, Lord, my prayer tonight is just in direct response to this word that you would keep us from being dependent upon graven images or things that we may think represent you and then those things become idols because we've actually taken our eyes off of you. I pray, Lord, that you would keep us from using your name in vain and ever lifting it up to emptiness. I pray that we would rightly represent you when we speak of our Lord. And I pray that we would know that we can't rightly represent you without the word. It's not just about how we feel in regards to our God. There are great, concrete realities in the word that we can hang on to, promises that should fuel the children of God. I pray that you would teach us how to rest and be refreshed. I pray that as in large part you have taught us that, that we would humble ourselves before you and submit to your design. I pray also for our relationships with with parents. Um, That we would honor mother and father. We have opportunities um, if they're still living, we have opportunities. And even if they've passed, we have opportunities to honor them. And so um, my prayer is that you would keep us mindful of that. Lord, also I'm mindful of what it says in James, of confess your sins to one another, that, that there may be healing. And pray that there may be healing. And so as we consider these things about having no gods before you, images that we worship, even though our intentions were maybe sort of good at first. So we talk about Sabbath. We talk about taking name in vain. talk about our relationships within our families. And next week as we talk about our relationships just with other people in general, um, help us to heed the word and confess our sins uh, where those sins exist so that there might be healing. Um, Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. Um, as I see your design here, It's nothing that any man would ever come up with. I pray that you would cause us to enjoy you more as we engage the word and are engaged by the word. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a good night.